Now, what I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. This is the principle on which I bring up my own children. And this is the principle on which I bring up these children. Stick to the facts, sir. So that was the opening paragraph from Charles Dickens's great satiric novel, uh, Hard Times. I'm John Fanning, and this is the Create with John Fanning podcast. How's it going? How are you all doing out there? Um, I hope you are all doing well. So this is episode six of my series of episodes on imagination and creativity, based around my book, Create. Last time I talked about how imagination can encourage us to move away from the wall of co-opted creativity, inspired by the wonderful uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Some of you mentioned that my call for abandoning creativity because of, uh, first, linguistic reasoning, and secondly, ideological, were too late, uh, which is a valid point, or points. Yes, imagination is an abstraction, a conceptualization, or abstract noun, rather than a dynamic act, like creativity, but creativity is no longer associated to the same extent imagination is in contemplating, meditating the images inside you or picturing your oneself as the definition of imagination itself uh, from the Latin word as I mentioned, I mentioned in the last episode. As I s- said at the outset of the last episode, um, I gave examples of how imagination has been co-opted too because of this but this is uh, in no way to the same degree creativity has uh, just from my own observations but uh, more important again is the way I see it as a lexical prison an idea I'll talk about an idea I'll talk more about in the next episode when I when I say imprisonment I mean we have to become aware of the conditioning around the words we use in whatever culture we're living in Creativity has cross-cultures, but it is far less a meditative act than imagination is, especially in the sense that the Romantics or Blake or Le Guin meant. Imaginations being captured or trying to be captured by corporations, but it is um, freer to me, a word that envisions more a part of the act and process of creation. You could say it doesn't matter what you call it, but it does. Uh, I quoted the wonderful Stefan Hessel in, in the second episode, to create is to resist, to resist is to create. Uh, the machines will gobble words to their ends, but we we have to resist them. We have to create a new understanding of our words so we're able to use them to our ends, not to the ends of the machines. As a friend just wrote to me from Australia, we have to re- reclaim the word, 
creativity. But to reclaim it, we must first understand that what has been turned, what it has been turned into, and find a new via media or a new word. Uh, to me, that's imagination. To others, it may be something else. What's important is the realization that to create is to resist, and to resist is to create. Um, to resist lexical prisons, ideologies created by all the big pharma, big academia or capital. So today I want to talk about school and education, as you probably guessed from the Dickens quote. because the, And because the subject is a large one, uh, the episode may run a little longer than the usual 30 minutes or so. Hopefully it won't. Um, so, as Dickens said or wrote, facts alone are wanted in life. So this is the character of Thomas Gradgrind, a wonderfully satirical Dickensian character, a doubting Thomas in the wrong way, who grinds grades, to use the inventive name Dickens gives him. Gradgrind grinds grades and facts into the heads of children, so imagination can never live there. He's a true villain to these children's imagination. Dickens actually explained the theme of his novel by saying, My satire is against those who see figures and averages and nothing else. Even though the book was published in 1854, it's still relevant today. And there's a wonderful oil painting by a Swedish artist, Peter Tilburg, which was done in 1972, uh, which also reflects this uncreative grad-grind worldview. Um, I'll put an image of it on my website uh, under this uh, episode. So the painting is called Will You Be Profitable, My Dear? And it depicts 27 students facing us, sitting in really uncomfortable wooden desks, with almost nondescript faces in a grey and very depressing schoolroom, waiting, waiting to be taught. Trying to imagine any child in that painting being allowed to have a creative imagination is, well, unimaginable. It's as if the energy has been sucked out of them, out of the whole drab room. And the problem here is this is where we want to inspire kids. Even the lights hang down like lost balloons, uh, imprisoned in the ceiling. All, all the pictures on the bulletin board tacked up on the left are in these precise rows, uh, just like the precise, perfect rows of desks. Um, the children seem more like the, the lights and pictures, imprisoned and tacked into place. What could have been an opportunity to inspire imagination and inspired learning has become rote facts, as in Dickens's novel. So how many of us remember our classrooms in straight lines, where we sat bored out of our minds most of the time because of all the uninspired facts being dished out to us? Unlike schools like Exeter in New Hampshire here in the States, as well as many others, where the collaborative circular table of, say, the Harkness method 
is not simply for preschoolers. This image of education is completely different. Instead of all the children facing one person, each one perhaps suffering anxiety over unfinished, misunderstood homework or some impending exam, at the round table we have teachers and students facing each other, inclusive, having a conversation, creatively looking at learning and promoting inquiry and inspiration instead of trying to dismantle it by regurgitating these dead, grad-grindian facts. And what happens to children in drills of table sitting to attention, waiting to download facts? Well, like the children in Dickens's novel, when they don't have imagination, they fall into dis- despair. Gradgrind's daughter falls into a loveless marriage to a morally bankrupt and ugly banker, while his son, Tom, turns into a man with out any scruples of conscience, a, a thief uh, who makes an innocent man take the fall for his crime. So witnessing the degradation and downfall of his children, Gradgrind realises that his own misguided principles have ruined their lives. Uh, similarly, in an interview, um, uh, the Irish writer Alice Taylor has something to say about children and the imagination she said the glory of childhood children have their own magic I have my own grandchildren and I see the older in their um, in their eyes about the wonder in their eyes about things it's great that children would have time to be children we have to give them time to be children not to cram their lives with too much activity I don't mind them being bored. I think it's good for them to be bored. They start exploring, then, poking around and using their imagination. I think that's our greatest gift, our imagination. As Blake said, imagination is evidence of the divine. So, people are educated to stay in the box. Society's educational system is based on this broken model, that of the mathematical mind created during the utilitarian industrial revolution Dickens so wonderfully satirizes in his novels. The American author, uh, activist and intellectual Noam Chomsky, in his book, based on a really good documentary, of the same name, uh, Requiem for the American Dream, talks about what he calls the ten principles of the concentration of wealth and power. Uh, one of them uh, is principle two, shape ideology, and under it, the subheading of education and indoctrination, where he says the following. There was an article in the New York Times quoting some doctors who give drugs to children in impoverished areas to try to improve their performance, knowing perfectly well that there's nothing wrong with the children. There's something wrong with the society. In fact, the way they put it, we as a society have decided not to modify the society, but to modify the children. 
The article he refers to was published in the New York Times by Alan Schwartz on October 9, 2012, and it's called Attention Disorder or Not, Pills to Help in School, and makes for some disturbing reading, especially a bit where Dr. Ramshish Raghavan says, We as a society have been unwilling to invest in very effective non-pharmaceutical interventions for these children and their families, and we are effectively forcing local community psychiatrists to use the only tool at their disposal, which is psychotropic medications. So leading contemporary educational philosophers are asking many questions, one of the most important being, do skills kill creativity? That's actually the title of uh, Sir King Robinson's inspiring TED talk from back in uh, 2006, where his talk makes an entertaining and profoundly moving at times case for creating an educational system that nurtures rather than undermines uh, the imagination and creativity. People are listening to him too. The video has been viewed over 63 million times. I'll leave an embed to it on my site in for this episode notes. Uh, there's a there's a part I love in this in his talk where he says life is not linear. It's organic. We create our lives symbiotically as we explore our talents in relation to the circumstances they help to create for us. But you know, we have obsessed with this linear narrative and probably the principle for education is getting you to college. So his point is that we need to bring a learning revolution to the educational system, not try to put bandages on a heart attack, basically. A whole new system needs to be created, not one that caters to bandaging the many negative symptoms of what is wrong with the old system that even Dickinson's characters lived in. It needs to be more in keeping with what the word school actually means, which comes from the Latin and Greek roots, leisure time. In addition to gymnasium, the training of the body to create a virtuous young person. And of course, Robinson advocates for an educational system based on creativity and the imagination. So another wall to creative education is the contemporary advent of helicopter parenting. uh, Today we're reacting to situations and parenting based on a one or two or three percent risk of something happening. It's kind of mad, but why is this? If a kid doesn't take risks, then how can they evolve as creative beings? When when I was a kid jumping ditches in school and through the fields, uh, isn't that a wonderful colloquial verb? That's actually a word, verb that that Irish writer uh, I just mentioned, Alice, um used in one of the titles of one of our books, uh, Schooling Through the Fields, or To School Through the Fields. Um, so that's where, where our real education should be, in the fields, in addition to, you know, going into his classroom, but there should be an emphasis on the leisure time. So when I was scaling trees and chasing cattle 
I never had my parents running after me, wondering whether I was going to be molested or kidnapped or taken away. Um, If I hadn't had that freedom to play and be creative in my day, um, I would never have been able to educate myself away from my parents with our kids and to overcome this, the fear of jumping out of a tree or climbing one when I, you know, I suffer from vertigo. So it's like, you know, how, how am I supposed to overcome that if I don't face it or, well, not overcome it, but deal with it, adapt or to get back up after being nastily fouled playing Gaelic football or if my parents were there all the time, I would have probably stayed on the ground crying, looking for attention instead of getting back up and going after that ball again. Again, uh, this this doesn't mean they're, they're not inspiring, uh, extraordinarily creative teachers out there. Actually, Robinson in his book, Creative Schools, The Grassroots Revolution That's Transforming Education, mentions many schools and inspirational teachers. Uh, actually, an, an Australian novelist who came to Lemuse told me, and five other shocked people on retreat once, that all of her teachers were inspiring, that all of them had become friends of hers. Uh, myself and the other five creators... Uh, in all our years at school and during all our degrees thereafter, could only think of one or two inspiring teachers, three at most. Uh, I had one that I can recall. So that's when we found out about um, Atlantic College and Round Square schools and Steiner schools from that Australian novelist. Um, so... This type of creative teaching, this type of creative learning is not linear or square. It's inspired. It's out of the box. This is inspiration and creation. So we need to be planting the seeds of imagination in our children so they move towards imagination, not away from it like Gradgrind's children, or into drugs because the schools are underfunded in impoverished areas. Also... Another thing, which I'll address more in a later episode on failure and success, uh, is the fact that if you go, if you go to the right school, it's much easier to get the established jobs. It's that simple. This is something I used to tell every young creator who came to Lemuse, not to be so hard on themselves. Yes, it's about getting lucky, but also about who you know. If you went to the right school for writing or art or building, then you have a much better chance of getting ahead, getting the job that you want. Most young creators are not aware of this and beat themselves up over not being successful or thinking that going to the right schools is some kind of urban myth or conspiracy theory. Well, it's not. It's just a simple fact. And if creators are aware of it, then they know they just have to work harder to get their creations out into the world which is an empowering way of looking at it. For example, if if you're a highly creative young woman who wants to change women's rights through political activism, your, ch- your chances of becoming a minister are no way as strong as a student who went to, say, Science Po, the Paris Institute of Political Sci- Studies. 
um, what do you call enarchs, if to use a French colloquialism. The the school's alumni include many of the French and international political elite. Seven, yes, um, like seven recent French presidents studied at Sciences Po. And 13 French prime, minister, prime ministers studied there. 12 foreign heads of go- state, of state uh, or government. And the same goes if that young woman wants to be a creative executive. There are six CEOs of France's largest companies who went there. And this is not just France. The private schools like Eton and Harrow in England, which are ironically called public schools, or Belvedere College in Ireland, or the many Ivy League universities here in the States, or as they call them here in the States, colleges, all give access, uh, a very important word that, access. They give access to positions of creative power, or more importantly, access to the tools for so-called creative success, inverted commas. You know, this idea or this economic and social and cultural access. I'm not saying this means you have to go to college or one of those colleges, but it helps a lot, even if there are many, many exceptions to the rule. Um, The writer Ray Bradbury talked to his to uh, the host James Day about his career back in the early 70s on a show that was called Day at Night. And this is what Bradbury has to say about college for a writer. I never went to college. I don't believe in college for writers. The thing is very dangerous. I believe too many professors are too opinionated and too snobbish and too intellectual. And the intellectual is a great danger to creativity. Because you begin to rationalise and make up reasons for things. Instead of staying with your own basic truth. Who you are. What you are. What you want to be. I've had a sign over my typewriter for over 25 years now. Which reads, Don't think. You must never think at the typewriter. You must feel. Your intellect is always buried in that feeling anyway. So I'll embed the YouTube interview on my website. Um, It's it's a pretty wonderful interview. Um, Then there's another American writer, the same one I quoted in um, in a previous episode, uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, And he says... uh, What I hate about public school systems is that they cut out the arts because they're not a way of making or a way to make a living. It is such a human thing to do and it is the experience of becoming if you have something that wasn't in the universe before. And that feels so good to human beings and to cheat kids out of that is criminal. Everybody should be painting now or drawing or whatever, just as they should be singing or taking walks or falling in love or whatever. It's so human. And not to teach kids how to do this is to cheat them terribly. So that's a quote taken from part of a wonderful conversation Vonnegut had back in September 2005 when um, he was talking about 
his book A Man Without a Country. Again, I'll put a link to the audio in the transcript of this episode. So, I, on a more personal note, I I have two degrees. One of them, an honours master's degree, but as neither of those degrees or school ever helped me on a path in any um, beneficial way to creating our artists and writers retreat in the south of France, for example. Um, or it never helped me write novels. And they never they never helped me create a podcast. Uh, after secondary school, I went to the nearest place I thought you could learn how to write, which is university. However, Ireland in the 90s was not the place to study creative writing. They had the University of East Anglia over there in England. And they had the whole creative writing cottage industry in in America here. But Ireland, nothing. Not one course. So what did I do? Well, I studied English, of course. Uh, Wouldn't that help me write? Studying Shakespeare, novelists, poets? No, it it was a nightmare. Hermeneutics, cultural materialism, post structuralism, new historicism. Isms polluted my poor head like Gradgrind's children. And every time I wrote an essay, it had to lean towards that specific lecturer's political ism. It was about as creative as hitting your head off a concrete wall. And then when I did my degree in Greek and Roman civilization, Marcus Aurelius, one of my favorite writers, was never mentioned. Maybe I missed something, but I never even remember a footnote where the man was mentioned. It was only later, uh, 15 years after my degree, that I discovered his wonderful meditations. Then the movie Gladiator came out. So you remember the old king. He was Marcus Aurelius. That's when I realized how incompatible my education was with actually educating me about creativity or the imagination or what inspires me. After two degrees, I went directly into the service industry where, surprise, surprise, I learned nothing about writing again. So how many teachers do you, during your whole educational experience, really inspired you? I mean, someone who took the time to really care and help you understand what it is you're on this planet for. As I said before, personally, I had one for one semester. And over the last few two decades, I've asked that same question to a lot of creators, and they'll say anywhere between one and three teachers. And as I mentioned before, uh, that lady earlier who went to Atlantic College, uh, she's an aberration, but wouldn't it be wonderful if the education she received was the norm? And some of the writers and artists who go to Lemuse are also secondary school teachers. On one retreat, we actually had six teachers from four different continents, and two of them had jobs creating the new curriculum of two different subjects in their country. And I asked them if they had watched Ken Robinson's TED Talks. I thought everybody had seen it. And they didn't know who he was. And I asked them what they thought about the United World Colleges or Round Square Schools or Steiner and and just stuff that's connected to all of those forms of education. And they hadn't heard of any of them. 
So th this scared me. And because how can there be so much passionate discussion about issues in education that don't make it into schools? If I, just some guy living in the middle of nowhere in the south of France, seem to know more than career teachers about what seems like vital stuff in regard to the philosoph philosophical stuff or philosophy of education and how important creation is for children, it's no wonder the system isn't changing. And uh, so don't get me wrong, these teachers are were wonderful people and they and they love what they do and are inspired by what they do. But if they're the experts and they're the ones writing the curriculum, well then then that worries me. But the problem itself is not the teachers, it's the educational system or systems. Uh, a recent example would be the child no or no child left behind program here in the States, which seems to leave the majority of kids behind because because of it over 70% of the school districts in the states have gotten rid of or cut back on their arts programs schools teach for testing not learning and if the system doesn't empower creative teachers how are they supposed to help motivate children to be imaginative and to think imaginatively so we're squeezing arts out of the curriculum you know, over in England, it's the same. The governments want core subjects, or what they call core subjects, the EBACC, or sciences. English, maths, a language, geography, or history is compulsory for secondary school teachers or, or kids. And this, in, this decreases access to dance and art, music, drama. In America, there's the same overemphasis on core science, technology, engineering and mathematics, what they call um, STEM, STEM subjects. Ironically, it was only when I arrived in America that I discovered there were whole departments full of lecturers actually teaching creative writing. Um, I was so the same system that talks of STEM subjects actually has whole departments teaching the stuff that I I couldn't find in Ireland. So I was just a little bit frustrated, you could say. Uh, why didn't they have them in Ireland, the home of so many Nobel Prize winners in fiction? Shaw, Yeats, Beckett, Heaney. Not to forget people like Joyce. So our aptitudes are completely different from those to the person sitting beside us in a classroom or in a, a lecture hall. The educational system doesn't cater to that, though. Never mind that. If you get 10 people into a room to learn something, all of them will not learn the same way. Uh, isn't that a creative opportunity, both in how we teach and how we learn to harness an imaginative way forward? But it doesn't seem to be what is being adopted. Also, if you think because you were bad at school, then you're not alone. There are so many creative people where school was just not a place they excelled. At school, Rodin was described as the worst pupil. He applied to France's um, most prestigious art school, the École des Beaux-Arts, but was rejected three times. And he's, even his own uncle called him uneducable. Or... Uh, and then there's Beethoven, 
he was awkward with the violin and preferred to play his own compositions instead of improving his technique. His teacher called him hopeless as a composer. And Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, was rejected by the University of Southern California School of the Cinema Arts. Not once, but twice. And Louis Pasteur, the father of microbiology, was a mediocre pupil. He is an interesting story. He preferred fishing and sketching. And in 1841 at the college, Collège Royal de Besançon, he failed to get his degree in science with special mathematics. He finally got in 1842 from Dijon with a bad grade in chemistry. Again, he failed the entrance test uh, for the École Normale Supérieure in Paris in 1842. And it wasn't until 1844 that he actually succeeded. So basically, um, by citing these examples, I'm just saying that don't let education or schooling be a wall away from imagination and your creation. For the most part, education doesn't teach you creative intelligence, how to create what you want to create. You want to create, um, you want to educate yourself in what you want to create. Uh, well, best way to do that is don't give up. Learn by doing. So, thanks for listening. I started with the wonderful Mr. Dickens. And as usual, I'm going to end this episode with an Irish proverb. This one literally means heavy is the load of ignorance. <laughs> or in English English, as opposed to Irish English, ignorance is a heavy load. So it goes, Is Thromon Tulok on Tlolus? Is Thromon Tulok on Tlolus? So as I say every uh, episode, this podcast is supported by you uh, via the Patreon page. And if you want to support it, go uh, to patreon.com backslash John Fanning. Um, Patreon's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can get early the episodes early and ad-free access. And if you can afford it, um, you can give me enough for a pint or a cup of tea. And if you can't, that's fine too. Just subscribe to it on iTunes, because that's how it goes up the charts and leave a review on iTunes if you can, even just a couple of words, uh, so the listenership grows. So thank you, and thanks for listening. Um, If you're looking for more episodes, you can just go to my website. It's johnfanning.me under podcast, or go to iTunes and any of the other places, and you can get my social stuff off my site too. So it's been great sharing stuff with you today. Uh, Hopefully it was in some way interesting uh so until next time take care out there and be benevolent when you can schlan live august gunarian boher live